Hey, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. I'm encouraged. I never know what to expect on Women's Retreat Weekend. So I am encouraged that that all of you are here. Now, I know there's some that aren't, but uh, you are. So thanks for that. Let's enjoy the word together as part of our worship this morning. We had an extended period of, of just singing back to the Lord, his truth. And now we get to enjoy it off the printed page. If you'll grab the bulletin insert that uh, you'll find, that's a little note page that will outline kind of the direction we're headed this morning. If you take your Bible, let's step into 1 Peter once again. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would join me there in your Bible. And if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We're glad to share God's word with you in that way today. 1 Peter chapter 1. And church family, the, the rain came this last week. Sparingly, sparingly, we would have to say, but we did see some moisture, and for that we are thankful, yes? We are indeed. Lord, send us more, but we are thankful. But perhaps you noticed, as I did, something going on around our mountain that I will simply call, a, well, I guess an, an elevated state of readiness. I don't know if you noticed that. All week long and even last Saturday at the community celebration fundraiser for the fire department, I was aware of this elevated state of readiness on the part of our first responders. The fire, the sheriff, the highway patrol, Caltrans, they were all at this event last Saturday uh, anticipating the forecasted rain and what that could mean for the burn areas here uh, on our mountain. Flash flooding, dangerous, destructive, potentially deadly debris flows. And it just felt to me like our first responders were were on alert. I mean, even the National Guard was in town earlier this week. I don't know if you noticed them, but they were here as well. Because here's the truth. In those burn areas, stripped of all vegetation, nothing but bare ground, when the rains come, even modestly to say nothing of a downpour there is nothing that's going to hold that soil at this time it will come washing down with an unstoppable force that's the truth that is the reality that's just the way that it is and these first responders in our community in possession of this truth they are taking steps they are making plans they are prepared for action, and I'm glad that they are, for them to possess the truth about these potential mudslides and debris flows and to not take action, why, that would be disastrous, wouldn't it? That would be disastrous, potentially even deadly. To have the truth and not apply it in an effective way that will make a difference, that just doesn't make any sense. The Apostle Peter would be in complete agreement with that line of thinking. To have the truth and not act on it would make no sense at all. As Peter writes this letter to first century Christians suffering persecution and danger and threat to their lives and their property for for no other reason than the fact that they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Peter would be convinced that, that truth must lead to action. 
Peter wrote this little five-chapter letter, and he sent it off to these hurting Christians in Asia Minor to try to help them live well for Jesus in a world that doesn't share their faith, that doesn't love their Jesus. For 21 centuries, Peter's letter has been helping believers do exactly that. Live well for Jesus in a world that doesn't share your faith. In the opening 12 verses, which is as far as we have gotten in our study series to this point, we're just burning it up, aren't we, church family? Yep. I think this is our sixth morning in First Peter. Peter has been trying in the opening 12 verses to encourage these weary Christians whom he calls spiritual exiles. And his line of attack has been to encourage them by reminding them of just how great their salvation in Jesus really is. Verses 1 through 12 are, really have been a, a beautiful presentation of salvation doctrine, salvation truth. No matter how dark it might get, no one can ever take a Christian's salvation from them. And we say amen and amen. And Peter reminds every Christian in every age of this reality in the opening part of his letter. God has saved us. Yeah, amen. In verse 1, we have been chosen, elected by the God of the universe. In verse 2, Peter says, sin's penalty has been covered by the the blood of Jesus. In verse 3, the mercy of God has been lavished on us all the way to where now we have been born again. We have spiritual life through Jesus' death and resurrection. In verse 4, our faith is a, is a living faith because it, it's in Jesus who's alive. And so we, we have a living hope in verse 4. And then in verse 5, that makes us heirs to an inheritance that's in heaven that God is guarding until we get there. This leads to a joy that no amount of suffering can take away, an inexpressible joy that's filled with glory, verse 8 says. And this joy is the overflow of knowing in the deepest part of who you are that God bought your soul for himself. That's verse 9. We have salvation. And then in verses 10 to 12, all of this salvation truth has been revealed to us by none other than the Holy Spirit himself, proclaimed by the Old and New Testament prophets and apostles. And Peter says at the end of verse 12, even the angels marvel and long to look into the greatness of our salvation. So now Peter, at the end of verse 12, begins to shift his thinking from encouragement of his suffering readers to a call to action. Once again, to have the truth, in this case, salvation truth, and not act on it, well, that just wouldn't make any sense. Peter would be convinced that being in a saved by grace through faith in Jesus relationship, having that truth in your heart, that has to lead to action. Just like having truth about flash floods needs to have action attached to it by our first responders. And that sets us on the doorstep then of verses 13 to 16 today. That's as far as we're going to try to go today through verse 16. Peter says, therefore, therefore. Now, when you read your Bible, Christian, every time you read the word therefore, what's the question you ask? What's the therefore, therefore, right? 
Well, it's a call to action. That's what Peter's doing. He's, I, he's, I, I've been encouraging you for, for 12 verses regarding the greatness of your salvation, but now it's time to do something. Therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, perhaps you noticed as we were reading, or maybe you stole a little peek at, the, at your note page, there's, there's two direct commands that Peter has put into these verses. The two commands are, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed, and be holy in all your conduct. Hope fully and be holy. If we get those two thoughts today, that's not too much to ask, is it? If we could just take those two thoughts away with us. Hopefully and be holy. We're going to step over the first part of verse 13 for just a moment to prepare your minds and be sober-minded. We'll come back to that in just, in, in just a moment. For now, two direct commands. Peter says to these beaten up for Jesus' sake Christians, in light of the fact, in light of the truth, that you are the recipients of an amazing salvation that no one can ever take from you, in light of that, therefore, hopefully, and be holy. Do those two things, Peter says, and they will help you to live well in a world that's hard and hostile and dangerous and doesn't love your Jesus like you do. So let's take a closer look at each of these. First, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church family, hope, by its very nature, is always oriented towards what? The future, right. It's always oriented toward the future. We don't hope for what we already have, do we? We don't hope for for things that have, have taken place in the past. We hope for things that are to come. And so here, Peter refers to something in the future, a grace that is in the future, a future grace. He says, hope for that future grace that will be yours when Jesus returns from heaven as he has promised. Now, Peter has mentioned Jesus' imminent return uh, several times already. Uh, Imminent simply means that Jesus could come back at any moment. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? That he could come back today? That's the truth. He could. His, his return is imminent. And Peter mentions his return, Jesus' return, in verse 5. He mentioned it again in verse 8. And now here it is once again in verse 13. It's going to show up several more times through the course of his letter. And that really shouldn't surprise us. Because, because when you're enduring persecution and difficulty and hardship and you're suffering for Jesus' sake, where are your thoughts probably going to be in the future longing to get out of that that hard place that that difficult place so i don't think we're surprised that we would see one more reference to the coming of jesus anytime we're in a tough place we're going to be thinking about the future 
We hope for something better. Psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 5, Weeping may tarry or last for the night, but joy comes when? It comes in the morning. and, And so Peter's commanding his his readers to look toward the morning. Look in hope. Set your gaze on the return of Jesus. Live fully in that hope. Not a suggestion. It's a command. Now, someone might ask, so, so Tim, what exactly is hope? What is that? Well, that's a great question. Whoever asked that, good job on your part. Great question. What is hope? Well, basically for the Christian, it represents how we look at the future. Hope at its core is faith. Hope is believing God. Hope is trusting God. Hope is faith with this distinction. Faith is believing God in the present. Hope is believing God for the what? For what is in the future yet. That's the distinction. Faith and hope, they really share the same stuff. In essence, faith believes what God has done and hope believes God for what he is yet going to do. Do you see see the difference? Both of them are, are still trusting God. But one's in the present and the other is in the future. To to put it another way, faith accepts what God has already done for me. Hope expects what he says he's going to do for me. Faith appropriates and hope anticipates. Faith believes God for what he has done. Hope believes God for what he's going to do. So let's track with Peter's thinking. This great and gracious God who saved us, verses 1 through 12. This great God who, by grace, was generous to us beyond description. Who proved himself able to forgive our sins. Able and willing to provide the perfect sacrifice in Jesus for us at the cross to redeem us. This God who has totally transformed our present and our future through faith in him. He is worthy of our confident trust in the future, even as he has been worthy of our confident trust in the past and present. That's what Peter is saying. If he has been faithful in the past and in the present, he will be faithful in the future. And we are to live in hope of that future without any wavering, without any doubting. Set your hope. And what's the next word, church? Fully. Set your hope fully. Maybe your version says, fix your hope completely. Now, regardless of the wording used there, the meaning is the same. Once and for all, fix your hope confidently and without any hesitation or waffling, without any doubt or uncertainty, set your hope fully. Now, one writer that I read said, set your hope to the hilt. And I like that expression. Set your hope to the hilt. Kind of the picture that came to my mind was that of a sword. And, and we could call it the, the, the sword of hope. And this writer was saying, you plunge your hope all the way up to the guard. You plunge it all the way in. No half-hearted, indecisive hope. Hope with fullness. You, you take it all the way to the hilt. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. What grace is Peter thinking about at Jesus' return? Isn't God's grace complete in my life already? Aren't we saved already by grace, church? We are, right? Absolutely we are. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, right? Amen is right. Grace, such a wonderful word for you and me. God's undeserved, unmerited, unearned mercy and kindness and love and goodness and and blessing that he's lavished on us in Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he wants to do. Salvation not earned by us, but freely given to us. Grace. What God has done already for us in our salvation, is that not amazing? Is that not amazing, church? If what we have right now in Jesus and in the salvation that we have through him, if that's all that we ever had, would that be enough? Oh, man. We'd still be singing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. We'd still be singing that. But Peter is alluding here to the fact that God's not done pouring out grace into our lives. There's even more undeserved blessing coming to us in the future, Peter says. We could call it future grace. A quick summary of just some of what awaits us as Christians as part of our future i've put down on your little note page we put it up on the screen as well but just think about a few of these things this is all future grace it's going to come when jesus comes or when we meet jesus ongoing conscious life upon physical death jesus said and tells us that if if we are absent from the body we are present with him second corinthians chapter five present present with god psalm 23 John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm coming back so that you and I can be together. Resurrected, glorified bodies. Are you saying amen to that? Yeah. When you get a brand new body, 1 Corinthians 15 says, this body is, is, is breaking down. And we say, yeah, it sure is. But there's a new one coming. I'm getting a new body. Seeing and worshiping Jesus face to face with your, your, your eyes. You'll be seeing him. Revelation 5. Eternal rewards for service that we've rendered to God here on the earth. That's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Eternal life on a new earth. Wow. Revelation 5. Eternal fellowship with other believers and loved ones who have died and gone on to be with the Lord. We're going to be sharing heaven with them. Paul thinks about that, looks forward to that future grace in 2 Thessalonians 2. And, and, and our eternal status as the children of God, sons and daughters of the king, adopted into his family, heirs of all that God has. That's Romans chapter 8. Now that just scratches the surface, brothers and sisters, of our future grace. We've got great grace right now, but there is a future grace Many more things are coming beyond what we could even imagine. In fact, one of my favorite New Testament verses is 1 Corinthians 2, 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So we don't deserve any of this future grace. 
It's beyond our imagining, but that's who God is. He loves to lavish his grace on his people. So Peter tells us to set our hope fully all the way to the hilt on this future grace. You following him? Following the argument, his his challenge? Now, the opposite is also true. Don't put your hope in anything less than present and future grace. Don't put your... Don't put your hope in, in, in riches. Don't put your hope in things that are in this world and are destined to pass away. Don't put your hope in your physical strength or your physical abilities. Don't put your hope in your personal achievements. And surely don't put your hope in, in your fellow man. You'll be disappointed every time. Hope in God. Hope in his grace. Hope in what is yet to come when Jesus comes For Christians suffering for Jesus' sake, man, what a helpful first command Peter gives. First call to action. Hope in future grace as Jesus comes back. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Peter's Peter's readers would ask. Well, he anticipates that question. And so we go back now to the beginning of verse 13 that we skipped over a moment ago where Peter supplies two ways by which we set our hope fully on future grace. We prepare our minds for action and we think soberly. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Obviously, both of these directives have to do with the way that you and I are thinking as Christians, how we control our thinking. The first phrase, if we were all reading this passage in a Greek New Testament this morning, it would actually read, gird up the loins of your mind. That's how it would read. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this creates a memorable image or, or, or word picture for us. Now, when I hear the word loin, I think of something that I'm supposed to put on the barbecue, right? Right, don't you? That's, that's what we think of when we think of loins or, or maybe something that I put barbecue sauce all over in the crock pot. That's what I think of when I think of a loin. But in Peter's day, loins referred to a man's body from his upper thigh to his belt. That was the loins. And, and in Peter's day, a man normally wore a toga or a, a, a long robe. That was the daily dress. And so when it came time for a, a man to work or if he was going to engage in some kind of physical activity where he's going to play or run or certainly when he went into battle to fight, what would he do? Well, he would bend down. He would reach between his legs. He would grab the back of his toga and he would pull it up through his legs all that extra fabric being brought up over his leg, and he would tuck that into his belt. And that was called girding up your loins. See, you knew that, right? You knew that. So what it really meant was you were being serious about your, your work or your running or your fighting, and that's really the main idea. The main idea, you weren't messing around. When you girded up your loins, you meant business. It was focused action. 
And so Peter's saying, do that with your mind. How? How do we do that? What does that mean? Well, what Peter's really saying is get the truth of God as it is found in his word and secure that to your mind. Tuck it into the belt of your thinking. Gird up your mind with biblical truth. You say, how do we get that out of, out of this verse? Well, think about what Jesus prayed for you and me on the night before he died on the cross. John 17, 17. His prayer to the Father in heaven of all the things that he could have asked God for on that night, one of the things that he asked was this. Sanctify them, them, in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. Set them apart. Make them holy by the truth. Father, make them holy by your word. We prepare our minds, brothers and sisters, for action in a sinful, hostile world by getting God's word into our minds, right? Yeah. Now, this is hardly a a Peter-only kind of a thought. In Psalm 119, verse 9, and and again in verse 11, here's what we read. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We've got some guys in our church who are memorizing these verses right now. I have put your truth into my thinking so that I am ready for action. And if you turn that page over, your little note page over, the Apostle Paul will urge us to do this in Romans 12 too. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what, church? The renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do we renew our minds? By continually putting God's word into it, right? By taking God's word and tucking it into the belt of our thinking. And it's worth noting that Paul actually uses the same metaphor of girding up your loins that Peter uses when he talks about our spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 6.14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, God's truth. And so Paul starts with the belt of truth because everything else in the arsenal of a Christian as he does war with our enemy, Satan, and the the demonic realm, all of it ties into the truth. Prepare, gird up your minds for action. Tuck Tuck the truth of God's word into your belt. And why are our minds so important in this, this, this thing called the Christian life? Why are our minds so important? Why would Peter focus on our minds? Well, the truth is, as we think, so we live. Would you agree with that? As we think, so we live. Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Yeah. The mind is the battlefield, and the enemy is anything that steals our thoughts away from confidence in God and and, and the sure hope of a future with Jesus. Anything that tries to do that, that's the enemy. Yeah. Which is why Peter adds that second directive in verse 13, 
Be sober-minded. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, this obviously does not mean being sober in your demeanor or super serious in your personality, like a, like a Christian who was baptized in pickle juice or something, and, you know, sober like that. And that's not the kind of sober we're talking about here. What's the opposite of being sober? What's the opposite? Being drunk, right? Being intoxicated. That's the opposite of being sober. So what happens when somebody is intoxicated? Well... They can't think clearly. Uh, they're foggy in their mind. They, they, they can't focus. They stumble around. They're a danger to themselves and often to other people. That's what happens when you're intoxicated. Sober thinking is the very opposite of that. It's thinking with clarity. It's thinking with focus. It's, 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 it's thinking that's clear and, and unfogged, if you will. That's what you're thinking. If you're sober-minded, you're, you're disciplined, you're discerning, you're alert, you're sharp. And you're not going to allow the, the allurements of this world or the, the, the pressure of persecution for loving Jesus, you're not going to allow any of that to distract you. You're going to be sober-minded. Paul puts it like this, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every what? Thought captive to obey Christ. We take every thought captive to obey Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Think about what you think about when you don't have to think about anything else. What do you think about? How often do your thoughts turn toward what we might call the spiritual realities that are part of your life in Jesus? How often do do our thoughts turn to the fact that, that Jesus really might come today? He really might come. And I would... I I will stand before him and I will now experience God's future grace. Only it won't be future anymore. It'll be the now. How often do you think about that? Would you be surprised if Jesus came today? Would you be ready for Jesus today? We can intentionally direct our minds to think about such things. Someone says, my mind has a mind of its own. Is that really true? Does your mind have a mind of its own? I don't think so. I don't think so. Paul doesn't think so. He says, take every thought, what? Captive to obey Jesus. We can intentionally direct our minds toward God thoughts. It it takes work. It takes discipline. It takes practice. It takes a desire to want to do that. It isn't just going to happen We've got to want to do that. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your, what's the next word, church? Set your minds on the things that are above. Think about those things, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's pretty clear, isn't it? 
And there's more admonitions from Scripture than these that I've just highlighted. So think about your thinking. We can control our minds. We are the gatekeepers. We can decide what we're going to allow in and what we're going to keep out. We make that call. We're not victims. We make the call. Years ago, there was a a guy who was in our church, and, and he was a computer guy. And whenever he would see or hear a professing Christian uh, taking into their life entertainment that wasn't consistent uh, with one who claimed to be loving Jesus, he would say, G-I-G-O, G-I-G-O, thinking about maybe a movie that somebody was talking about or, or, or music or, or a TV program. And it didn't line up with biblical truth and the values that Jesus would hold. G-I-G-O. G-I-G-O. Do you know what he was saying? Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. Set your minds on things that are above. Be sober-minded. Brothers and sisters, Satan doesn't need to convince you and me about the merits of buying into some false teaching, some false doctrine. He just has to distract us through our own sloppy, undisciplined thinking that would keep us from focusing on the truth as God has given it to us in his word. That's what Peter's saying. Check this out. Philippians 4.8. The Holy Spirit exhorts us. Finally, brothers, whatever is You say it. True. Whatever is. Whatever is. Whatever is. Whatever is. Whatever is. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. God's word doesn't just tell us to. To, to have a biblically centered, focused way of thinking, it tells us what to think. It tells us how to think. And someone says, tell me again, Tim, why, why does all this matter? It matters because what's at stake is our hope. Hope in the midst of life. Hope in the midst of troubles and trials. Hope and faith that get us through the highs and the lows, the the joys and the sorrows of this life that make it possible for us to live well for Jesus in a fallen, often uh, overwhelming, unwelcoming, dangerous world. Thinking well helps us to hold on to our hope. The more habitually I manage my mind, the more I immerse it into God's truth, where my mind is shaped and directed and disciplined and encouraged, the more hope I will have in this future grace and the present grace that God has given to me. That's why it matters. But all this matters not just because hope is at stake. It matters because holiness is also at stake. Holiness. Remember, there are two direct commands here. Hope fully and what was the other one? Be holy. Be holy. So that brings us to verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, 
You also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter moves now from right thinking to right living, which affirms what we read earlier in Proverbs 23, 7. As a man thinks in himself, so he is. Right thinking, right living. The command is to be holy in all your conduct. Now, uh, later in this letter, Peter will, will call for these suffering Christians to live holy so that when they are falsely accused and when they are slandered and when they are charged with crimes, as they are being, that, that, that's their experience in this moment, as that's going on, Peter is saying, you be holy so that there will be no basis for those charges when they're brought against you. Your life will refute that. But that's not his focus here. Here Peter reaches into the Old Testament. He quotes a statement that God makes five times in the book of Leviticus. You shall be holy for I am holy. Peter says, brothers and sisters, be holy in your living because the God who saved you is a holy God. Holy. Holy. It's only four little letters in this English word. Such a tiny word. And yet that little word represents the infinite moral perfection of God's being. He is holy. The Apostle John writes it like this. 1 John 1.5 This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is what? He's light. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all that's holiness that's a holy god all light no dark revelation chapter 4 verse 8 in heaven the angels sing to god and one of the 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 songs that they sing has these words in it and and they focus only on one attribute as they sing this song revelation 4 8 holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. No sin. Not even an inclination to want to sin. Forever totally good, morally pure, every thought, every action for all of eternity, past, present, and future is holy. So Peter takes the the moral standard of God's character and he makes it the goal for the life of every Christian, 1st century and 21st century. God is holy. We're to be holy because He is holy. In every arena of our lives, we are to seek to be people in whom there is no darkness at all. And we all cry out in unison, that's impossible! Right? Isn't that what you're thinking? That's impossible. I can't do that. You're right. We can't. We are not holy in all of our conduct. Brothers and sisters, that's precisely why we need Jesus. Right? That's why why we need a Savior who died on a cross for our unholiness. And it's why we must tell others about Jesus because they aren't holy. And they need this Savior, just like we do. The Bible says that 
through faith in Jesus, our unholiness is paid for by him and covered by his blood. Romans 5 verse 1 says it this way. Therefore, since we have been, what's the next word? Justified, yeah, past tense, justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the word justified means? That word means declared righteous, declared holy before God. Wow. Right this moment, brother, sister, and Jesus, if you are genuinely in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, right this moment, you are holy. Positionally. In your standing before God, you are holy. He sees you as holy. It's all grace. It's all grace. But it's true. Positionally holy. Unfortunately, as long as we are in these bodies, our practice does not match our position, does it? In this life, we can never attain that moral perfection that is God. We cannot be as holy as God is. But, but we can strive to be holy because God is holy. Right? We can do that. A holy life which is ours in position is what we are to strive for in practice, though we know we will fail. We cannot be holy here to the infinite extent that God is holy, but we can in some small measure see more and more of his kind of holiness reflected in our lives as God works his grace in our life. The Holy Spirit says this is a command. You be holy. In all your conduct. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. But once again, how? How? How can this happen for us? Well, Peter says two things. He says, first, stop living like you did before you knew Jesus. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? See that former life that you lived, it was lived in spiritual ignorance. See that life as being dead. See that life as as being over and done with. That life had a pattern of living outside the will of God. You lived in ignorance. Don't live like that anymore. Stop living like you did when you didn't know Jesus. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's one way that we can be holy in our conduct. So so start with that. But then secondly, Peter says, remember who you are right now. You are children of God. Verse 14 begins this way. As obedient what? Children. Church family, when God saves us, one of the great truths that's a part of our salvation is that he he adopts us into his house, doesn't he? He, he, he invites us to become part of his family, to, to take his name. We become his children and he becomes our what? Our Father. Are you with me? Are we all together here? Good. Great. Good. Yes. He becomes our Father. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 17 talk about this. We become quite literally members of God's family. God becomes our Heavenly Father. We are made His eternal children. So striving to be holy takes on, as Peter presents it here, kind of a relational dimension, a father-child relational dimension dimension the new pattern that our lives are to conform to is based on this new relationship i'm a child of god and god is my father 
Faith in Jesus means that God's my dad. Now, what do small children try to do with their parents? Imitate them. They try to imitate their mom and dad, don't they? That's what they do. Small children try to imitate their parents. And by the way, that's the exact Greek word that Peter is using here. It's the word for small children. He's not talking about teenagers here. He's talking about little kids. And so as obedient little ones, Peter says, be holy in all your conduct because your father is holy. You be, you be holy because your dad is holy. Isn't that cool? That's what you be. Peter is literally saying, be like your dad. Stop living like you did before Jesus and live like your dad. Live like your dad. Small children imitate their parents and church family. They even imitate their grandparents. You know, among the technological advances of our time, one that I am really enjoying is FaceTime on my smartphone, especially when it allows Lisa and I to not only talk to our kids and our grandkids, but to see them while we're talking to them. That is a great invention. I love it. So when we FaceTime our kids, our, our youngest grandchild is, is Michaela. She's, a, she's, she's 15 months old. And when we FaceTime, she gets right up to the phone. I mean, right up to the phone. All you can see is kind of her eyes and her nose, and she's, she's, she's watching us. And we do this thing. We do it every time that we call uh, one another. She imitates me. And so I, I shake my head, and Michaela shakes her head. And I bob back and forth like this, and she bobs back and forth, and she giggles while she's doing it. I cover my eyes like this, and Michaela covers her eyes. And when I blow her a kiss... She blows one back to me. Now, I would like to think she's doing all of those things because she loves me. But at 15 months, I'm not sure that that's actually what's going on. At the very least, she wants to be doing what I do. She wants to imitate me. And I love that. I love it when she wants to imitate me. And God loves it. When we want to imitate him. So you see how all this comes together? The command to hope fully in verse 13 and the command to be holy in, in verse 15. As we focus our minds, our spiritual thoughts, our energies on this present and future grace that our Father in heaven has lavished on us through Jesus, that increasingly influences what we want to do. It influences what we desire to be. The more we fill our minds with God's truth, the more our hope swells, the more our love for our Father and for our Savior deepens. And the more that all of that happens, the more then that we want to be like our Father, holy, the more we long to see our Savior, hope. You see how it all comes together? It all works together. So let me close with this. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. It's, near the, it's at the very last, last reference there on your note page. It's almost as if Peter and the Apostle Paul were both in the same room writing their respective letters, Peter to suffering Christians and Paul to a beloved pastor, and they're writing the same thing. 
What Paul writes here in Titus 2 is exactly what Peter has just written in verses 13 to 16, just using different words. So, so check this out. Peter, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1 of Peter. Training us, that's the preparing our minds, sober in our thinking, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's our former ignorance. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. What is that? Holy lives before God. In this present age, waiting for our what? Our blessed hope. What is that? That's the future grace. The appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ our great God and Savior. Titus 2, 11 to 13. Paul and Peter saying the same thing. Hope fully and be holy. Two ways we can live well for Jesus in a world that doesn't know him yet, right? But we have that truth and we can take that out into this world and share with those who don't know. Let's pray together, church. Let's pray.